Hello and welcome to this third episode of the Future of Wealth Management podcast. I'm your host, Ville Fahler. Today we're talking to Daniel Sorbrick from BFI Infinity. BFI Infinity is a Swiss-based wealth manager that specializes in serving U.S. clients. They are SCC registered. You can find them at bfiinfinity.com. That's bfiinfinity.com. In the interview today, we'll be touching on various subjects. Among other things, why Swiss wealth management is relevant to U.S. investors, but also subjects like regulatory synergies that BFI are seeing from complying with both Swiss and U.S. regulations. We'll also be touching on U.S. lobbyism and conflicts of interest comparison between Switzerland and the U.S., But instead of me telling you all about the interview that's coming up, why don't we just get to it and listen to the interview? I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Daniel. Firstly, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself in your own words and what it is you and BFI do? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, Well, first of all, um, you know, BFI Capital Group um, is basically in business now for uh, well over 25 years. And... BFI Capital Group is, um, you know, consists of four different uh, businesses. We have uh, BFI Infinity, which is the wealth management um, entity. It's, a, it's an SEC registered investment advisor, primarily um, working with uh, North, North American clients. Then we also have uh, Global Gold. In our group, Global Gold is an entity that is specializing on uh, trading and storage of uh, physical uh, precious metals. And then the third uh, pillar, if you will, is uh, BFI Consulting, which is uh, basically focusing on insurance uh, solutions for global clients, but also with the best bit of a special focus on the American clients. And then the fourth pillar is basically private equity uh, project that we have in the blockchain um, area called Exedras, but that is um, a bit of a separate um, you know, business still at this point. And my role within the group is that um, I'm the chief, uh, chief executive officer of uh, BFI Infinity. So I'm heading up the wealth management um, business and um, that's basically the space that I've been in for you know many many years now. Um, originally, um, was um, working for a company called um, Swiss Infinity. Um, Swiss Infinity then merged with um, with BFI Wealth Management um, a few years ago to form a BFI Infinity, the the wealth management company that it's uh, that it is today and as such i'm responsible for um, the wealth management side of the business and uh, managing the day-to-day operations of the company yeah so you mentioned quite a few business areas that you're involved in in the bfi group how would you say that your services differ from say a a family office because I, i guess as an aggregate if you look at all the company groups you you're getting quite close to that sort of uh, offering yeah it's a it's an excellent question it's an excellent question because um i think the difference you know is actually quite uh, quite small you know um compared to a family office um you know service i think um first of all what i think is is unique about um you know bfi capital group 
<clears throat> is the fact that um, you know we're pretty much the only um, you know Swiss firm, at least the only Swiss firm that I'm aware of, that is actually um, really providing you know this broad range of services for North American clients. And where there's you know there are, there are other registered investment advisors, there are some insurance companies out there, and there are some precious metals companies out there. But really, um, kind of offering all of this, um, you know, these different lines of, um, you know, service um, under one roof, that I think is quite um, unique. And I think especially for North American clients, when they look at um, having money managed abroad, um, it's it's not kind of a, you know, standard setup, a standard offering that they would normally get there from the North American advisor. So we understand that, you know, we're not really selling a product, we're selling a service um, in many ways. It's a customized um, service. And on top of that, it's a customized service, you know, where I think the relationship with the client is really the, is really the most important, you know, um, part of it. So with that, you know, uh, I think you can say that the, the way we build those relationships with our clients, the way we deliver our service, um, we really want to be that solution provider connecting the different dots and guiding the client through the, the process. And I guess you can really say that this becomes very, very close to the, the family office um, service. And I think here it's maybe a bit the difference in, you know, a family office service or multi-family office service typically um, is fo- focusing on a, on a, on, on a number of, you know, very small number of individual clients. <clears throat> Our, um, you know, business and offering is really, um, you know, structured in such a way that we can, you know, work with uh, quite many clients, you know, um, in North America. So um, it's probably different to a, a family office or a multi-family office in the number of individual clients that the clients that tends to be obviously quite a bit higher in our case. Yeah, yeah, it sounds almost like you have a little bit of a smorgasbord of of services that in aggregate can make up the family office type of service, but clients don't necessarily correct. have to have to pick it all. They can customize according to their needs. Absolutely. Yeah, correct. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you've been around since I think it's 1993. Correct. Uh, I guess there's quite an interesting piece of um history that uh, your company's gone through like with the introduction of FATCA for instance how did you experience that period of time were you involved with US clients before then and what what was your thinking around that time when when all of this regulatory pressure came down <laughs> quite quite hard and I, a lot of a lot of Swiss banks started uh, yeah, kicking out the yeah. American clients well, um, you know, first, obviously, we, we were around. I mean, we've been, you know, working with American clients for um, a long time, as I mentioned. So we were in in, in the middle of, of it all. And, you know, FATCA, now thinking back, um, what I do remember from that time is that it was quite a, um, uh, you know, pain, painful time and one that was... Um, it's very intense of the workload and the communication with clients. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely been, you know, a bit of a rough period um, in, you know, that 
I think from us really required, you know, a lot of handholding, you know, for clients and, you know, helping them through the process. And um, because what FATCA is, um, you know, I think for us more than anything is really just additional paperwork and where, you know, we, we, we've never been in the space of, um, you know, having anyone with, you know, non-reported accounts. I mean, so that, that, the, the taxation or actually lack thereof was never really an issue for our company. Um, we've always done things in a compliant manner, but, you know, then doing all the fat work and the paperwork that's, um, you know, basically attached to that, um, that's been obviously very painful when, you know, you, you need to explain, you know, clients why they need to do this additional 30, 40 page, you know, documentation um, and really just kind of, which is really, a, you know, an, an additional burden on them without really, you know, any, you know, big benefit. But I think what's important there is, you know, to always keep in mind, I mean, you know, FATCA wasn't wasn't uh, something that the Swiss banks invented. I mean, FATCA was something that, you know, the U.S. government invented and then kind of really forced on pretty much, you know, everyone around the world um, in order to make sure that every American taxpayer out there is um, is really paying, you know, paying the the, the dependent taxes and this is a, a huge you know regulatory monster that at first i think for us um it was pretty you know painful but you know now actually looking at fatca it's um it's it's business as, as usual so for a new account opening um the fatca forms are uh, part of the standard documentation so it's really not that big of a deal anymore um obviously it still requires a bit more time a few more signature by the client <clears throat> but i think for us, I mean, more and more, we, we, we're really looking at this and, and think that it's almost now, you know, a blessing and certainly working in our, um, you know, favor in that when it comes to tax compliance, you know, um, we don't really, you know, need to deal with, you know, this situation in such a way that we're kind of never really sure, you know, is this client not tax compliant or is he not? Um, <clears throat> with this quasi-automatic exchange of information on the FATCA, I think it greatly simplifies the, um, the, 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 the documentation, the know your client documentation with regards to tax compliance in that, you know, um, the client knows this is fully transparent in terms of the tax reporting. And therefore, I think um, no client would obviously want to hold funds here and hold an account here, um, you know, knowing that they're not, um, you know, properly complying with the, the tax law. So in a way, for us, FATCA has also eliminated a lot of, you know, uncertainty. And I think in the meantime, it's really, it has become just business, business as usual. So it's not that big of a deal anymore. But it was certainly painful, that's right. Yeah, I guess the uncertainty is, is entirely gone now. If you have a questionable client or prospective client who wants to come on board, there's no uncomfortable conversation to be had about them about compliance. Then It's just business, yeah, like you say, business mm, as usual. Correct, yeah. correct yeah. Was there any point in time at, at that time when you considered exiting uh, US clients altogether or was that never, never anything that occurred to you? No, it was never really an option, you know, for us um, because, um, you know, our 
our main um, goal was always, you know, to keep, um, you know, keep servicing our clients and, you know, be be the be their partner uh, for their offshore investment needs. And I think um, that was the main reason why we, you know, were willing to deal with FATCA, dealing with a lot of regulatory um, complexity, and you know, not don't forget. I mean, also, I think. Um, you know, doing the the registration with uh, the SEC in the in the US a few years ago to make us a fully registered investment advisor for American clients. I mean, all these different you know projects. I mean, we're talking here um, a significant investment in terms of um, you know work, a significant investment in terms of um, you know money. And um, while we certainly did that to you know, really serve our existing clients. <clears throat> we um, always, you know, uh, I think we, we kept believing and uh, I think today we're more convinced than than ever that um, the U.S. market is really a huge opportunity for um, non-U.S. Um, advisor that can help clients, you know, to, to, to give them, and give them a truly global perspective on, on, on things. So, um, while the past was, you know, not always easy and certainly challenging in many ways, um, you know, more than ever before, we're convinced that the um, the U.S. you know market for international advisors is just an enormous, enormous um, opportunity, provided that you know you not only have. Um, I think the right solutions <clears throat> that you can offer, um, but also I think um, provided that um, you have the, uh, quite a, a broad network um, in the U.S. Um, where you can really spread your message and kind of um, you know uh, make people aware that the option option of um, international international banking and investment management is actually even there for them. So um, we're very excited about the future, no doubt about it. Yeah. So you mentioned there a few things about providing uh, the kind of international diversification and uh, offshore investments for US-based clients. Uh, how do you see your main points of differentiation compared to US-based advisors? Are there a couple of of things that you would mention as being benefits compared to, to them going to a US-based advisor? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, I have a number of reasons that I think are really important and I think are really, um, you know, speaking in our favor compared with the domestic solutions that clients are usually looking at. But, um, you know, I think that the, the, the two main to the two main reasons, you know, I mean, why 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 would a client in the U.S. even, you know, considering working with us? I think the value proposition that we bring to the table is um, it's basically wealth protection and access to global investment opportunities. And I think wealth protection is something that is, um, you know, really crucial for an American, you know, client because, um, you know, everyone that has, you know, a business and is wealthy and has some money in the in the bank. I mean, clearly, um, the more the more the wealthier they are, the more, um, you know. Um, I think um, the more 
the chances are that they are getting into some kind of um, you know an issue um, with, for example, you know lawsuits and things like that. So I think um, from that perspective, you know, having good, strong legal jurisdictional asset protection in place is really a um, a must-have for an American client. Most of the time, however, um, you know, these clients don't even know that this that this um, you know option exists. Some even think it's um, it's illegal to have money. Um, you know, outside the country. So, so there's a lot of fairy tales going around here. But I mean, the, the, the point is that, you know, asset protection is, is really needed for American clients. And yes, they can do it. And yes, it's legitimate, legitimate. And yes, it's fully compliant. So the wealth protection plus then in combination with that, the access to international, international investment is also, I think, um, Another important reason, because um, in the U.S. market, even though this is still today the biggest market for wealth management, and um, in fact, in, in absolute terms, still the fastest growing market um, in, in in wealth management, we have a situation where um, still most American clients have a have a have a very very strong you know focus and bias. Bias, home bias in their portfolio, which means typically 90, 95% plus of their investments are in the US dollar and are in US um, you know, securities and US-based investments. And, and that is a huge opportunity because I think as over time, this market will open up and over time, people are looking for a more global approach to, 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 to invest and diversify. I think the, the, the need for um, global investment expertise will greatly increase. And with that, with that we believe we have obviously um, another you know, good reason why someone should actually consider our services. And then maybe as a third reason um, that I want to mention briefly, um, you know, what differentiates um, us and typically, um, when you look at you know the portfolios that we are constructing for our client, I mean we're looking at um, multi-asset class, truly globally diversified <clears throat> investment portfolios that um, you know are really um, constructed in such a way to look at the return side, but um, then always also consider the, the the risk management part, risk risk management side. And I think what we are often seeing with the portfolios that domestic US advisors put together for the clients, this is often, um, you know, these portfolios are often kind of an almost random selection of some kind of funds and financial products in there. And there really is not, you can't really see, you know, that there is um, a proper, you know, a proper um, investment strategy there. Um, it's more of a, you know, a basket of products. And obviously, um, with a basket of products, you're often looking at financial products that um, are actually, when you look at the different layers of fees, are actually quite quite expensive, which um, you know really creates a situation where at the end of the day. When you compare a domestic wealth management solution to an international wealth management solution like the one we're providing, um, I certainly don't think that the international wealth management is, um, in terms of total costs, is, is actually uh, more expensive than the domestic costs. It's just that some of the fees are not um, easy, easy, easily visible, and that I think is often why you know, people have this feeling: "Oh, this international thing is so expensive." Well, it's actually in terms of total costs, it's certainly not more expensive. Now, I can I can certainly 
see that. And on the asset protection side, I guess another aspect is um, also counterparty risk uh, with U.S. banks quite often being quite uh, well, not having having that great uh, capital buffers, especially compared to to more conservative uh, Swiss banks. If you look at the custodian bank side, uh, I mean, um, yes and no. I mean, you know, first of all, I think um, <clears throat> what needs to be said is that you know, in in in, in general, I mean, most, um, especially the large U.S. banks, they've you know, over the last couple of years, I think they've improved um, you know quite a bit in terms of. Um, the, the 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 capitalization so they're certainly you know at, at least at first glance they're they're more you know they're more stable than you know they used to be in you know the 2008 you know following the Lehman crash and the and the difficult years thereafter and actually the same is also true for most of um, you know global banks and especially also the European banks but then I think. What really differentiates um, maybe some of the American banks is that first of all, um, yeah, there might be a, there might be more capital now, um, but then you're still looking in many way in many you know cases you're still looking at business models that have um, you know investment investment banking, um, some sort of derivatives um, you know or mortgage business in there. So the the whole cocktail of of potential risks there um, is still one that I think could get pretty toxic, you know, um, if there was another, um, you know, financial crisis. And you know, we we tend to stay stay away from you know the the the, the big banks, you know, anyway. So our typical banking partners are the somewhat um, smaller, truly private banks. So banks that are just basically doing private bank, and that's it. So. We don't want to, you know, have our clients in, uh, you know, booked with banks that run a lot of different risks in their um, operations. We want them to be as conservative and as stable as possible. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, banking balance sheets are uh, quite difficult to decipher. If you look at the the bigger mm-hmm. banks, it's almost impossible to figure out what risks and what exposures they actually have mm-hmm. uh, have on their books. Mm-hmm. Looking, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, that you're primarily looking at the U.S. market. Who, who do you actually see as your primary competition? Is it U.S.-based advisors or Swiss advisors, or is it more of an international competitive landscape that you're mm. looking at as your competition? As a, from the international advisor, the non-Swiss advisors, I think there's really there's hardly any competition there because um, from the U.S. registered advisors, there are actually very few, um, you know, foreign. Um, investment advisors that are really active in in the U.S. The comp the main competition I think is coming from the domestic um, the U.S. based advisors um, and you know typically I mean you have to understand I mean this is a this is a pretty um, competitive um, you know industry with a strong lobby um, that certainly has no interest you know that clients are moving any of the assets offshore so their interest is you know to hold clients in the US um, you know make sure that they're not sending money um, abroad even though it's completely against I believe the interest of um, the, the client and so we, we certainly feel that you know once in a while um, when we work with a US client, um, that typically also have a, a U.S., um, you know, or several U.S. advisors on their side. 
that, you know, we're facing, obviously, you know, sometimes comments like, you know, oh, this is illegal and you can't do that and you can't do this. And, and so there's definitely, a, you know, a fair amount of, um, you know, I think competitive, <laughs> um, lack of a better term, competitive feelings that we that we get, you know, from the, the domestic advisors. But um, I think that the reason for that is really, um, you know, I think um, competition, I think it's, um, you know, quite, you know, ignorance to, to a large um large extent and so what we really have to do and what we have to do a really good job in the next few years is you know to get the message out there you know educate um, you know clients um, what options are explain to them why it's actually you know legal and perfectly legitimate um, to hold money outside um, of the country and you know we're doing this i mean we're doing this through a network of different partners um primarily um estate planning you know firms so we're 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 doing more and more um you know of that but um yeah the, the us market is a bit of a shark, of a shark tank you know where <clears throat> quite often the advice that is given to the clients by the domestic advisor is um you know not necessarily um in favor of the client or in favor of the client's long-term interest um it's all about you know keeping money in the u.s and keeping aum in the u.s and um this is unfortunately you know i mean the reality but that's also i think the the culture of the money management industry a bit in in the in the u.s and again i don't want to generalize i mean you know not, not everyone is doing it that way but um i think especially the big players you know for sure so um yeah i mean that's the reason why we see a lot of opportunity in this market. So we mentioned a little bit about the U.S. law base trying to keep the money money in the U.S. And I guess that is quite a nice segue into the regulatory side. I mean, you're you are as a Swiss-based advisor, you you have both U.S. and Swiss regulation to to contend with. How how do you see the evolving regulatory environment? Is it just a burden, or do you do you see any opportunities? I, I think. I guess one thing I could potentially see is that we may we might have stronger consumer protections actually in, in Europe and Switzerland. So maybe that's that's something that's a, a selling point actually. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's obviously you know already in the making. I mean, you know, on the on the Swiss side. I mean, twenty twenty. Um, first of January next year, we are, we are going to have the you know the, intro, the introduction of um, uh, Feedlake and Phoenix. I mean, those basically the, the the new regulatory framework for the independent asset manager. And um, you know, Feedlake is um, I mean to a large extent. I mean, this is about you know consumer um, you know protection. It's um, in fact it's 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 quite similar to you know MiFit that you have in the eurozone and then um yeah i mean it's definitely going in that direction you know but when you look at you know the us and you look at basically you know what the sec you know and the, the oversight of investment managers you know managers there i mean this is also you know mostly about um, you know consumer protection so i think we have a bit of a, an advantage here now with the new regulatory reality in uh, switzerland because you know many of the issues that we have been dealing already because of this uh, of the ssc registration with it a few years ago it simply means that you know we're probably now more ready for the um the new regulatory standards that we have in, in in switzerland and um i mean there's also you know this is really interesting i mean there is um 
it is certainly um, you know more work for us now, but what we're seeing very clearly is we're seeing a global you know trend towards um, kind of you know convergence um, of um, you know regulatory the regulatory framework around the world you know becoming increasingly you know similar. So while this was um, maybe a bit of a headache you know a few years ago i think now more and more you know we're seeing that this is all kind of moving in the same direction so while you do it um you know you do a certain you know job to comply with um, swiss standards or u.s standards you you in many cases you're already covering then um you know the the regulatory requirements in other markets and so again yeah it is more work you know for for sure it will probably you know continue to be the case but i think we're now a little bit um you know beyond the peak in this whole development where we feel we're starting to, to achieve a lot of synergies and i think um you know more and more um you know the, the the standards look increasingly similar so it might not all be that difficult for us to deal with it yeah, that's been my impression as well, especially uh, looking at it from uh, my kind of regulatory and compliance glasses on. It, it definitely looks like uh, a lot of maybe, regulation is, is very similar in terms yeah, of... Yeah, this is maybe one thing I want to throw in there, and that is obviously that, um, you know, with increased regulation, I think there comes a, a bit of a, um, I'd say, almost a, a, a natural, you know, selection of cut here in the market. And that I really think for small, you know, advisors with, with limited, you know, I think resources, um, I'll simply create an environment where I think for, for, for a lot of the small um, advisors, it'll just get really, really difficult, you know, to kind of, you know, follow um, this whole procedure. And so what I, what I expect in the market here in Switzerland, I certainly expect, um, you know, more and more and more consolidation over the next, you know, year or two, um, not only in like, the banking and investment advisor market specifically, also in the market for U.S. clients. And so that might be, that might be offering, you know, some, some opportunities for us, um, you know, as, as, as being part of the, you know, consolidation and obviously hopefully being on the on, 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 on the side of consolidation that is going to benefit from it. But um, clearly the, um, the the threshold, you know, for, to make such a, um, a business profitable is um, probably going up quite a bit more. Um, so that is in a way an opportunity, but then I still feel, you know, pretty, you know, bad about it because, um, you know, in a way, I think we should always make sure that we have a, we have a, an environment for different firms in Switzerland that you can also, you know, continue to work in this space, even if you have a, you know, a small operation. And um, that will, unfortunately, I think for many of the small ones, it will be very difficult. Yeah, I suspect so. So too. Uh, on the subject of, of consolidation, I think a lot of uh, private banks and wealth managers, especially in Europe, uh, are struggling with um, attracting younger clients. A lot of their client bases are 60 plus and clients, especially in the high net worth segment, segment clients under 40 are relatively uncommon. How do you see the whole subject of attracting younger clients um, as a as a wealth manager? What what do you see needs to needs to happen in the industry to to achieve that? Well, I think first of all, um, the, the 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 younger generation, you know, um, you know, be that now the millennials um, or 
some people or that are maybe even in their 30s and some bit older than the millennials and even then young, the younger than the millennials. I mean, I think what they all have in common um, is I think, first of all, um, they tend to have a bit of a more, um, you know, global view on things. And that is, um, that in itself, I think, is already an opportunity, you know, for us. And then um, what's also important is, you know, you you, you got to know, you know, what sort of, um, you know, topics are really, you know, important to them. So when I look at, um, you know, areas um, like ESG investing, you know, as, as an example, I think, um, you know, ESG used to be a few years ago. I mean, I think a lot of people in our industry that were kind of, you know, just, um, you know, looked at it and thought, oh, well, that's just like, you know, the latest, you know, uh, thing here again, and it comes and goes uh, away again. And I really think um, that that's not true. I think, um, you know, a concept um, like ESG is now, you know, become so much part of uh, kind of almost embedded in, I think, the um the the, 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 the the part of um, the you know the process of financial analysis that um, I really think you 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 have to you have to know what it is you have to understand how it's going to um, you know influence companies and with it how it's going to you know impact investment decisions so that is something that I think every investment manager needs to be aware of so that when you talk with um, you know clients from the younger generation. Um, you really got to be, you know, got to be able to help them on this side as well. And, you know, the other thing is, I think, in general, I think for, um, you know, the, the more global view that I that I mentioned, I mean, we certainly, you know, this is certainly our experience with younger clients that, um, you know, most of them, they have a, a more global, you know, global picture and um, they look, I think, at international you know, solutions. So they're probably also more receptive, you know, to, to global solutions. So I think, um, you know, despite the fact, I mean, when you look at politics at the moment, you know, it certainly feels like now we're making a step back in terms of globalization, we make a step back and not a step forward. And um, that is certainly the case. But, you know, over the next 10 or 20 years, I, I have no doubt that, um we we will be living in a more globalized you know reality and i think it's typical you know again i mean globalization we go one step back and then we make three steps forward and you know with every step forward um i i, I believe that the um the demand for international solutions will you know increase and with it you know obviously hoping that the demand for our services um will um, will increase with that as well yeah uh, so what sort of other changes do you see coming in, in the industry at the moment? How do you see things evolving and, and where do you think you'll be in three to five years? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of changes impacting, you know, our business. But um, I think the one thing that we always want to want to make sure um, we, we we constantly invest and reinvest in our business in terms of um, the relationships we're, we're, we're building. I mean, you know, every client that we have, um, I can honestly say, I think I pretty much know every client, um, you know, um, at the personal level, um, you know, we certainly feel very committed to these relationships. So it's all about, you know, it's all about, um, 
good relationships. It's all about good people. It's all about them, you know, doing good work, you know, with them. And, you know, we need to, we need to, to build on, you know, I think the model that, um, you know, brought us, I think our, the success in the first place. And that is really just, you know, good service to good people, um, building good relationships. And it's, this is, this is something, you know, how, you know, I think we can really differentiate ourselves. Um, I think we can also differentiate us more from some of the more, you know, digital solutions that might be, you know, out there. We believe that um, relationships are always going to be very important and um, that's really the backbone of, um, of our business. So with that and, and with this kind of, you know, broader trends um, that I mentioned, you know, in, in place, um, I have no doubt that um, the opportunities, I think, um, are going to be great for us in the future. And um, so we want to continue, um, you know, to build the business, um, build it with the same quality, build it with the same, you know, kind of passion and enthusiasm we, you know, we've done in the past few years. And then basically see, you know, how, how far we come. I mean, we certainly have, um, you know, no ambition to be, um, you know, become the, 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 the biggest company in terms of AOM. <clears throat> I think we want to be known for, you know, being the number one, um, you know, service and investment company for Americans in, in Switzerland. That's, that's our goal. And that's not necessarily <clears throat> tied to any AOM number, but I think it's really tied to the experience that clients have when they work with us and, um, you know, giving them the best possible experience um, so that, you know, people really believe that they have come to the right place. That's how we, you know, we measure our own being. That's how we measure our own um, you know, work. And we believe if we're continuing to set our standards high and keep um, delivering, you know, at the, at the very high level, that um, this will, you know, kind of almost naturally, you know, bring success with it. And that's the, that's, that's the whole, you know, success model. I think that that's basically, um, it's been that way for the past few years and we will continue to, to, to move forward in that direction. Yeah, it's a little bit like with Swiss watch brands uh, there, I think, you know, the, the best Swiss watches are brands that not every person necessarily even knows, and they're not the most common ones, but people in the know, they know what they are. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right, and and I think you see in in our business, um, you know, it's um, that the financial financial business and, and especially the wealth management, private banking arena in particular. I mean, that unfortunately over the last um, you know twenty years or so, I mean, it's become unfortunately quite a bit of a sales show. I mean, um, you know, not only in Europe, but uh, Europe and the US, but certainly in these two markets, that's been you know the trend where. I really believe often these larger organizations, um, they don't really care so much about the client. They see AUM numbers and return on assets and all these, you know, measures. But I think no one really actually asks the question, well, how does the client feel? You know, is the client really happy? Is the client feeling comfortable? So that's that's really how we measure, um, you know, our work. And that's um, our benchmark is how the client feels about, you know, what we're doing for them. And, um, you know, we only have, I believe, we have to follow the benchmark that the clients, um, you know, are giving us. And um, that's all we really, you know, care for. And, you know, the other thing is maybe the last thing there is, um, you know, when you, 
when you look at this um, you know industry then um, it's this is this is not this is because we're we're kind of positioning ourselves as a you know for as a partner for wealth protection and global investments we also don't want to differentiate um, ourselves just by performance i mean performance is important you know but you might have a few good years and maybe a few not so good years i mean that's just you know normal but we never ever you know want the client to you know leave because um, they're not happy with the performance, you know. Um, but once in a while, you know, you have clients who think they can get um, higher returns or more aggressive returns in other markets. I mean, that we can't change, but we, we always want the client to feel very comfortable, you know, with what we're doing and that offshore solutions, you know, that um, they have with us. Um, it's really kind of a almost nest egg type, um, you know, concept. We just want to feel, we, we want them to have peace of mind. We want them to feel comfortable. And that's another you know, added value that we want to bring to the table. Yeah, be able to go away and travel the world for three months without having to check their online statements um, yeah, several times several times a day uh, as exactly. to how the investments are doing exactly. yeah yeah that's correct yeah, that, may, that makes uh, perfect sense um kind of going a little bit off script or uh, end of script but uh, uh, there's a lot of talk at the moment now about a global slowdown in in 2020 how, how are you viewing uh, that do you see uh, any clouds on the horizon Oh yeah, I mean, plenty of clouds, you know, for sure. Um, you know, but then I think this all needs to be seen in perspective. I mean, you know, our um, investment to you actually is very clear. I mean, you know, we're seeing a right now um, a global um, synchronized um, downward trend in the you know in, in the economy. And actually, you know, you can when you when you when you track. Um, um, you know, economic indicators, macro data, leading indicators around the world, then um, the only logical, um, you know, kind of, you know, view um, can be that um, we're really dealing, you know, with a broad-based uh, slowdown in the global economy. I mean, that's just um, a reality that um, I think anything else at this point would be um, naive to believe and I think would be wishful thinking. Um what will happen for 2020, um, you know, and, and, and how much the economy is going to rebound, I think, um, depends on a few things. Um, um, I, I believe it certainly um, depends a bit on the reaction we're seeing from the central banks. And, and clearly, I think um, we see already that central banks like the Federal Reserve in the U.S., you know, have already completely, you know, um, they're reversing their course and um, starting to lower rates again. Um, but then on the other hand, I think the slowdown at the moment has certainly nothing to do with um, the level of interest rates. I think the, the, the slowdown has to do with a general uncertainty in the world about, um, you know, global trade and, you um, so we're talking here not only the, the trade issues between the U.S. and China, but certainly also you know the U.S. and Europe. We have um, you know other conflicts out there, you know such as South Korea, Japan, um, the trade conflict there. So there are plenty of um, 
you know, these conflicts, you know, um, out there. And I believe um, that's really been dominating, I think, media coverage um, to a large extent the past few, you know, past few months, you know, for sure. And and that is clearly not having a good, um, you know, influence on the global economy. So that's part, I think the psychological influence is a big part of um, the current, um, you know, slowdown. But I think it's, um, with all this uncertainty and noise that's currently out there, I think it's really important, you know, from a, an investment management point of view to, to really stay calm, you know, not panic. I think right now we strongly recommend that, um, you know, people are holding their positions, they're maybe hedging their bets. I think this is, you know, very important because there certainly is, um, you know, the potential for, you know, one or the other uh, nasty correction in the equity market over the coming months. But um, um, we would still at this point, you know, any, 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 you know, larger correction, uh, we would still, you know, see as a great, um, you know, buying opportunity because um, one thing we got to realize is that in spite of all the, the trade tensions, you know, in different parts of the world, um, you really don't hear so much about, you know, all the new trade agreements that, um, you know, have been, you know, put in place over the last you know, year or two. And so we're actually looking at the situation where, whereas this, this China-US thing, you know, might be hanging over our heads for, you know, probably a little bit more more i also think that you know more than anything it's really um, a bit of a show um, where i believe the the individual players will try to um, you know really leverage from it from a political point of view and therefore i, I would not surprised to hear more you know positive news coming through in in, in the next um, you know few weeks and that certainly has the potential to support support the market any further but again the most important thing is to realize that, you know, on a global scale, if you look at all the different, you know, free trade agreements that have been reached over the last, um, especially the last two or three years, we still have, we're still dealing with a world that, you know, um, that, that mostly still, you know, moves towards more free trade and not less free trade. And I think this is, um, this is really important, you know, to understand. I mean, the, we talk a lot about this U.S.-China thing, but, you know, at the end of the day, it might not even be all that big of a deal, um, you know, uh, especially not with, um, with, with regard to the um, development of the global economy. So, yeah, short term, definitely clouds on the horizon. Um, plenty of challenges to deal with in 2020. Um, but I believe um, for an investor that has a well-diversified portfolio, maybe, have, you know, hedge your equity bets there for um, the next few weeks or the next few months. But also, I think you always want to be there and look for larger corrections because, um, yeah, it's still simple. I mean, it's always been that way. You want to buy low and you sell high and buying low yeah. typically, you know, exactly, you know, um, happens in times of, um, you know, these, 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 these short, uh, short term, uh, you know, sometimes nasty market correction. So that's basically been the strategy from the beginning. Yeah. You don't see, you don't see anything of the magnitude of say 2008 happening no. Uh, no. in the next 12 or 24 months. Okay. That's no, I mean, <laughs> well, you, you know, I have to say, but, you know, then at the same time, I mean, I clearly see that, um, you know, looking at, um, 
government debt, looking at corporate debt, looking at household debt, looking at other sorts of debt. Um, you know, then what I what I what I clearly see is um, you know that um, whereas you know most of the European countries have actually managed you know to um, get their you know um, government debt and chronic spending under control. Um, we see that uh, I think government debt in Europe as a whole is more or less pretty well under control. In some markets, it's even starting to fall. So that's good news. <clears throat> but I think um, the U.S. is really kind of you know the I guess you can say the outperformer here in a in, in a more negative meaning. In that um, the compared to 2008, the U.S. is really the one country that has um, seen an enormous increase in government debt, an enormous increase in corporate debt, um, a bit of an increase in household debt, and I think a huge explosion in other areas such as um, you know student loans, and you yeah. know adding up the all these three or four you know pillars of um, debt, I clearly see that. Um, the, the debt problem might be actually the biggest in in the in the in the US, and I believe that this at one point, first of all, it was one of the main reasons why the US economy has been outperforming the past few years. It was simply more credit um, employed in the system, but I also would see that in times of a slowdown, that I would see the U.S. market, you know, underperforming exactly because of that. And it simply does not really give a good, um, you know, outlook on um, the U.S. and the, the U.S. dollar in particular for the coming years, which I believe from the point of view of an American investor make international investments even, you know, even more interesting. So now it's not only, you know, I think the, the reasons that, you know, speak for um, offshore um, wealth protection and global investments from a conceptual point of view. Now I I, I really also do feel that the timing might um, you know might be you know giving us an almost you know, once in two decades opportunity from the perspective of an American investor. Interesting. Now the reason I'm asking about the uh, financial issues going a little bit off topic is um, I've had an impeccable uh, timing in my life. My my mother bought a house just before the biggest banking crisis in Sweden yes. in the 90s. Uh, mm-hmm. I finished university just uh, in computer science, just as mm-hmm. uh, the dot-com boom went to a bust. And I bought my first property in 2008, just as uh, the, the world economy was <laughs> okay. falling apart. So oh, okay. I wanted to see if, if, if I'm now growing a company <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a small family family if i'm doing the same thing again for a fourth time yeah it's you know timing obviously you know can be sometimes quite bad you know but i think that the most important thing even with you know real estate i mean you see that um you know most of the real estate you know has really kind of uh, you know recovered greatly or maybe not fully but greatly um it's it's really um I think you just don't want to, you know, buy, you know, into it there, um, you know, with a, um, at the end of a boom. But um, I certainly, you know, feel that um, interest rates are going to remain low. Um, I believe demand, you know, is going to stay relatively, you know, high. And, you know, therefore, I think um, if you have a home and you look at it with the right long-term perspective, I still think it makes, um, you know, plenty of, um, you know, sense. But short term, yeah. yeah, sometimes, you know, it might hurt. But on the other hand, no, there's always time for a comeback, right? Yeah, no, I, I remember in the 90s when my mother was paying, I think it was 12.5% <laughs> on her mortgage. Crazy uh, times, uh, crazy uh, times, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, that's uh, more than a credit card these days. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. 
Excellent. So that is the end of our interview with Daniel Surprik from BFI Infinity. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'd also like to thank um, Daniel very much for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking to him. As some of you noticed, uh, we had a little bit of a break due to international travel between the previous episode and this episode. Hopefully, we'll be back much sooner with the next one. We have some exciting new guests coming on, and we also have uh, plans for another solo podcast soon enough. If you have any ideas on potential guests or subjects we should cover here, you can always drop us an email at podcast at chaotic.io. That's podcast at C-H-A-O-R-D-I-C dot I-O. Thank you very much for tuning in and um, hope to have you back again soon enough listening to another pod. Bye.